0: Episode 5, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, our topic for today's episode is going to center around an interview I did with William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack, um, and the movie version of that uh, 27 million selling book is coming out very soon, I think it's March 2nd, and the trailer for the film is at the, the shack.movie. Is that right, Becky?
1: Yeah, the shack. movie, and it's actually March 3rd. March 2nd is for, like, special people. I don't know. You special might be people. one of those special people yeah. that gets to go March 2nd. But March 3rd, in theaters across the whole country, The Shack will be playing. And um, this is William Paul Young's novel New York-time bestselling book turned into a movie. And you can go watch the trailer, which, you know, Tim McGraw is in this movie. So, you know, but you can see that at the shack. movie.
0: Okay, and so I just learned that there's March 2nd people and March 3rd people, which is like when Jesus said there's sheep and goats.
1: We're March 3rd people.
0: So we might be goats.
1: (laughs) We might be goats. That's okay.
0: (laughs) We have, however, seen a a screening of the film in advance, so um, we did watch it together as a team. And I know um, that—I've known uh, Paul Young for uh, several years now, and I know that he's quite controversial uh, within the Church— Not only for what he wrote about in The Shack, but um, he's had other best-selling books, too, and there are things that people like and things that people don't like about what Paul Young writes, and I'm in that camp, too. Like any other follower of Jesus, we don't always agree on everything, and I don't always agree with everything Paul is about, and he doesn't always agree with everything I'm about, but one thing I really, really agree about with Paul is his perspective on Jesus and what he has written about and spoken about, his... um, understanding, experiential understanding of Jesus and his scriptural understanding of Jesus is so powerful that that's why I've included uh, in some of my books uh, something that Paul Young has said about Jesus, because I think he has so much good to say about our relationship with him, and it's so kindred to our heart, which is to pay ridiculous attention to Jesus and therefore be transformed by him. So we decided to talk to Paul in advance of the release of the film, And talk to him specifically about Jesus and how Jesus has interrupted the the story of his life to make beauty out of ugly, and how does Jesus go about making beauty out of ugly. So today we're going to listen to about a 20-minute interview I did with Paul Young on um, Jesus making beauty out of ugly, and then after we listen to this segment of the interview with Paul, then Becky and I are going to react to some of the things we've heard, and I think what you're about to hear is is going to change the way you think about Jesus, and it's going to help you understand what Jesus is doing in your life right now. So let's listen to Paul Young. And I know the the shack started out as this kind of fable you wanted to tell your kids that would plant a sense of the overshadowing love of God in the depths of of darkness, because if it could kind of live there and thrive there, it could live and thrive anywhere. And I know that your attempt, at least from from somebody who has experienced this and listened to you talk about this, your attempt was to invade our worst fears with something bigger and stronger than those worst fears, sort the, of the, the superseding reality of a God who loves us and names us, and, and he's not going to abandon us. So... You know, this podcast is called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, and we, like you, believe that we come to know and understand the heart of this God through Jesus, whose job description is to reveal God's character and personality. So when we track all the way back to when this this idea came to you to tell your kids a fable, and to plant it in this dark territory, why did you feel this mission was so important for you to pursue with your kids?
2: Well, I tell people that I was trying to do like the Bible says, and submit to my wife. (laughs) (laughs) And they always laugh, and I go like, it does say that. It says submit one to another, and she is one of the other ones. And um, so Kim, you know, she and I had gone through really um, a a rough period of time uh, at my uh, uh, because of my choices, and uh, and that started an eleven-year dismantling, rebuilding journey for me. That's represented by the weekend that Mackenzie spends in the shack. And I've always been a writer, and so Kim, she would, she started to say for about four years. You know, someday, as a gift for our children, would you please write something and put in one place how you think, because you think outside the box. And, um, I didn't feel healthy enough to do that till the year I turned 50. And then, uh, and then I'm, I'm finally looking at my life going like, you know, um, it's, I could do this, but I wanted to do it authentically. So I wrote, really, it's a parable more than a fable. It's a parable and parables are true. They're just not real. And, um, So it's very autobiographical in many senses. And so I wrapped up my history inside this story, and I'm saying, like, okay, what's the deepest loss a human being can experience? Because if you go there, you're going to pick up all the other losses along the way. And And
0: and, And by autobiographical, you're saying, experientially, I have been in that place myself. So what is a what is a parable-like way of describing the very place I've been in. Is that right?
2: Correct, correct. Uh, <clears throat> let me put it this way. A writer from Nashville wrote me after the book first came out, and she said, I don't know who you are, I don't know um, anything about you, but my sense is that Missy, who is Mackenzie's daughter, who's abducted and evidence found at the shack that she's been murdered, that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child, probably your innocence. Hmm. And Mackenzie is you as the adult trying to deal with it. Mm. And I showed that to Kim, and she said, boy, she nailed it. Mm.
0: Um,
2: because it, uh, part of my great sadness is being a missionary kid inside boarding school and dealing with sexual abuse. And, and, um, and so it ripped, you know, the, the child. The child that was in me was never allowed to actually exist until I was 50 years old. Mm. It took that long um, for that child to be resurrected.
0: So we yeah. we often we often will say, in um, almost it's too casually we say it now, that we are broken people, but you're saying no, we're murdered people. There's something in us that has been as violently um, destroyed as murder
2: does. That Absolutely, it it just rips the fabric of the human soul apart. There's nothing that is quite like that kind of abuse and. And abuse, in general, rips the heart uh, to shreds, and I think that um, uh, a lot of us live inside that loss and uh, cover it over with our, our agendas and our busyness and everything else, but, um, you know, the, the whole imagery of the shack is the imagery of the house on the inside that people help us build, and yes, we're broken, you know, people broke us, or broke things in us, or stole things, and we didn't ask for it. And then we turned around and started breaking things ourselves, mm. and um, I did. And so, you know, I, I broke things in the hearts and lives of people around me that I, I actually cared for but didn't know how to love. And, mm. um, and then, you know, you, you have to ask the question, so where is God when things were stolen from me or murdered in me? Where was God when I then turned around and started to break things? And where is God when I had to learn to let things go? And all of those questions are so pertinent to the human condition. We, if, if you're going to do something that is authentic humanity, this is where it's at. Because we share two things as human beings, beyond all the divisions that we experience, which are myriad. But we have at least two things in common, and that is love and loss. And every single human being has experienced both of those. And uh, their whole world is wrapped around the the impact of that loss or the impact of that love. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's, I think, in part why the shack had this massive r- ripple effect through the culture and then around the world. Is it because it was human? Yeah. It said, here are some real questions. Not only did it give us a language to have a conversation about God that wasn't religious, but it also validated our great sadnesses. Yeah. It validated the tears that we shed,
0: hmm. um, or that we cover up. I I totally agree with you that it was the. In fact, it was human in a way no Christian book I had ever read was, and I think that's that's what really you went past the unspoken boundaries that I didn't even know existed, but I realized them when I read the book because you went past them. And, you know, in uh, a, and go ahead.
2: Part of the beauty is that I had no idea what I was doing in the sense that I had no idea this would ripple out like this because I, I made 15 copies at Office Depot that did everything I ever wanted that book to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm trying to say to my kids, look, we live in a world where these horrendous things happen and, um, and losses occur, and if I'm not there to tell you how I think about them, let me write a story and, and, and embed it in it. And not only that, I don't want you to grow up with the God that I did, who is really no answer to the kinds of losses that I experienced. And in fact, we had a sort of theological paradigm where God had a plan that included all of those losses. So in a sense was the originator mm-hmm. of that darkness. And and where was there to run to? You had to run to Jesus, because he came to save you from God the Father, who was that darkness behind him mm-hmm. that needed to be appeased. And um, so I'm saying, like, I don't want my kids growing up with that God. Yeah, um, we... And that's why, when Mackenzie goes back to the shack, that God does not show up, because mm-hmm. that's the God that Mackenzie thought existed, but I don't believe
0: exists at all. Oh, that's good. And you know, the the... the... This idea that we are uh, deeply broken, and that we reorient ourselves around the dissonance with that by telling ourselves narratives that include God, that often horribly disfigure who he really is, I think is such a crucial, crucial issue. You know, in a previous conversation we had, you said something that I loved so much, I put it in my book, The Jesus-Centered Life, uh, it's actually at a, a pivotal point in that book, because what, what you what you were able to capture um, is pivotal to this journey with Jesus. Here's what you said, and I, and I want you to just comment on it. You said, whole, I asked you about uh, what wholeness was. I asked you to define what it was, because you were using the word wholeness. And you said, wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. And that begs the question, what's the truth of your being? And this is where this understanding of Jesus at the center of all the cosmos becomes absolutely critical. How are you going to know the truth of your being, unless somebody tells you what the truth of your being is? And I just thought that was right uh, down, uh, right in the middle of the target. We are broken people. It's not rhetoric; it's literal, and our brokenness is painful for us, and it's lived out in pain toward others, as you've just said, and. And yet our response to this dissonance is often self-help strategies and five-step plans. So right. what, what is the role of a deepening relationship with Jesus in this journey toward wholeness that actually uh, matters in our life? It's not a rhetorical journey with him that, that leads toward wholeness. It actually matters. What does, that, what does that look like in your life and, by extension, our lives?
2: Yeah. So there's a, there's a line in the movie, and it's in the book, and where Papa says to Mackenzie, says, truth has a name, and he's over there in the workshop. <laughs> and, uh, and truth is a person. And, and we, we begin with a very low view of ourselves and humanity, generally speaking. We don't, we don't begin with a high view of humanity that I think God has. And so self-help and all that is to try to extricate ourselves or lift ourselves by our own bootstraps to some level of performance that um, is different than what we believe to be the truth of our being. And our theology has even done this to us. It's told us we're utterly depraved, we're worthless, we sing the songs, you are good, there is nothing good in me, and and we keep pounding into the, into the depth of our being that we're pieces of crap, and that that if it wasn't for God's mercy, there would be absolutely no hope for us. But God doesn't love us um, because there is anything good in us. God loves us because God is good, and that's just the way God is. So we begin with a very low view of humanity. Jesus comes to absolutely violate our low view of humanity. Hmm. God doesn't become anything that is not good, and he becomes human. And so the incarnation is the revelation of the truth of who I am. So I can look at Jesus, and anything that I see in him that is true is also true of me. And the scriptures constantly pound that. fruit of the Spirit is, and guess what? The Spirit of God lives in you, poured out on all flesh. So whenever you find patience, goodness, kindness, joy, meekness, long-suffering, fury at things that are wrong and things that are unjust, all of that, is part of who you are in the truth of your being. The, um, the simplest illustration that I can use, and probably um, the most, one of the most in-your-face ones, is that because of the sexual abuse and stuff of my childhood and a whole lot of other reasons, um, I, was, I was deeply addicted to, to porn and uh, for a number of years drug it into my marriage and everything else. And, of course, hidden, of course, covered up, of course, all that stuff. And, um, and I have had no, I mean, like, zero issues with it for 20-some years now. Why? What changed? Well, it wasn't that I got better at self-discipline, because self-discipline is a performance action from the outside in. Self-control comes from the inside out. And by by definition, I am, the truth of my being is that I am self-controlled. That's what mm. Jesus reveals. Mm truth of my being is that I'm pure of heart. But it wasn't self-discipline, and it wasn't accountability. It was when I began to learn how to agree with the revelation of Jesus that the truth of my being is that I was pure of heart. And once I knew the truth of my being, the way of my being matched it. So this is,
0: we've got to pause here for a second, because this is such an important and subtle distinction, because even you're talking now about the fruits of the Spirit, not in a way that this has been bastardized uh, for most of us growing up in the Church as uh, a list of things that we need to work harder to get better at. You're describing them as literal fruits that spring up from an interior reality that we come to embrace.
2: Absolutely. This is why no one, no one, prays for patience in the New Testament. You won't <laughs> find anybody praying for patience. And, and you go, like, why? Well, and then we bring on our theological, distant, uh, disapproving God picture that we've drug along with us, and we say, well, the reason you don't pray for patience is because that mean, abusive God is going to put you in a situation where you're going to have to learn it through pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. So, So we twist it all up, but nobody prays for patience in the New Testament, not because they're afraid of God, but because they know the truth of their being. Why would I pray for patience? And the truth of who I am is that I am by nature patient. Mm. And once I, once I begin to agree with the truth of my being that has been revealed in Jesus and been revealed in Scripture, why, my life changes and the way of my being matches. And here's, here's where we're stuck, because when you start with the truth of your being, that you're depraved and you're worthless and you're a piece of crap, Anything that you produce to counteract that is, you'll feel like you're just being a fake or holding on, and it's self-discipline, which is a work of the flesh, and you're just going to do it, and and then hopefully you die before you just blow it so bad you're no longer acceptable. That's the frame of reference that so many of us religious people have brought in, into this whole conversation. I, I have internal boundaries, I have internal guards about I will not, I will not objectify another human being. Man, woman, child, I will not do it. Why? Because I know that the truth of my being is that I'm pure of heart. Hmm. And when I know that, which I do, then I'm not going to participate in something that objectifies
0: another human being. Yeah, so and what we're talking about here, I, I think, is the fundamental war that we are engaged in, whether we know it or not, and it's been the fundamental war of human beings since the beginning of time, which is the war over our identity. Because uh, we have an enemy who understands that if our identity is broken, destroyed, or tainted, we will self-destruct. He has to do very little work relative to effort to destroy us once he's besmirched our identity, because we do the work for him. So well, th- we've
2: done it. We've done it to ourselves and to one another. We've done it theologically. We've done it psychologically. We've done it as parents. Yes, we've made the value of our children based on performance. We've we've used our language to say you're nothing but trash. I, you know what? No. I'd, I'd rather you had been in my life. You're worthless. On and on and on and on. I mean, we don't even need an external enemy. <laughs> when we've done such a powerful <laughs> divisiveness within our own within our own ontology within it, our own being. It's
0: a, it's and it's a perpetual uh, 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 spiral of self destruction, and therefore, at the foundation of all things, the restoration of our identity has similar. Uh, working out into all areas of our life. That's what I hear you saying right now, that when the restoration of our identity begins in more earnest, as we embrace the reality of the truth of the character of Jesus living within us, and begin to identify with him the way scripture tells us is true, uh, that this is actually true, he's living within you, with all of these character qualities, as we begin to embrace this, the fingers of this transformation Affect every arena of our life. That's what I hear you saying.
2: Yep, and and consider this: the Imago Day. We are created in the image and likeness of God. The Imago Day personified, incarnated, is Jesus. If you want to see what the Imago Day looks like, feels like, acts like, thinks like, look at Jesus. And everything that you see about the Imago Day in Jesus about the image of God that you are created in.
0: Amen. And Amen to yeah. that. <laughs> Let me ask you one last question, Paul, and it's 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 like my favorite question of all time. It's it's Oprah Winfrey's question. I think it's the best question I've ever heard, and she she loved it so much she created a whole book out of it. It's very simple. Uh, I in in my book I call this the Oprah question, and I add on to it a little bit. But her question is what What's one thing you know for sure? Uh, my version of this is, what's one thing you know for sure about Jesus? So today, where you sit now, um, what's one thing you know for sure about Jesus?
2: Um, I'm going to go one step beyond that, because there's a lot of things that we know for sure about Jesus. I'm going to say, what's one thing that I know for sure about God the Father? Hmm. And and that will encompass Jesus and the Holy Spirit as well. It's good. And that is that God is light, and in God there is no darkness at all. Hmm. That God is good all the time. In, in the deepest and best longing of our hearts definition of good, that God is good all the time. Nothing that is evil or darkness originates in God, and I know
0: that. Hmm. And, it, and we see it exemplified relative to what you just said, through the way the Spirit reveals that goodness uh, internally, and through the example we have of, of Jesus living in goodness in so many surprising ways that confound us.
2: And here's, here's a corollary to that, is that any time I see goodness in any human being's life, I know it originates in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hmm. Jesus says this to the rich young ruler. Why are you calling me good? There's only one who is good. He's not saying, I'm not good. He's saying, do you recognize in me the Father and the Spirit? Yeah, that's good. Do, do you acknowledge that this is about being, not about performance? And of course, the rich young ruler is caught up in the performance. But that means that any goodness, any time you see a parent who loves a child, regardless of their religious, uh, political, anything, any ideological issues, whatever, 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 when you see goodness, you are seeing their participation in the very being of the Father, Son, and Holy
0: Spirit. So another way of saying that is that all goodness comes from the headwaters of goodness.
2: Absolutely, and is always an expression of that, because there is only one source of it. Yeah,
0: that's good. Paul, thank you so much for spending this time with this, Um, you know, just based on just the, the early response to the film version of The Shack, I think this is going to be a huge rock in the pond when it's dropped in March. So, I uh, you know, congratulations on the grit, perseverance, and faithfulness you've had to get to this point with this story, and to, to really uh, carry what was dropped into your lap with uh, such grace. So thank you. I appreciate your time uh, on I, I this. Am-
2: I'm so thrilled to participate and so honored inside the grace
0: of a day. All right, there's Paul Young. Uh, There's a lot in that 20 minutes of conversation, and uh, as Becky and I were listening to it, one of the things she said immediately was, wow, did he cover all the bases in that short amount of time? And he does, and there's a lot in there to think about and chew on, and I guess that's what I want to encourage uh, um, listeners for you to do, is is uh, to not be too quick to categorize or label whatever it is you just heard that you liked or didn't like, but to allow yourself the the space to chew on what he's saying, and to trust Jesus to lead you into the truth of that. And the truth of all these things would, of course, never violate anything that he's, that we know he says already, in the New Testament, so we can relax about that. So so chew on these things, but Becky and I want to uh, hop around a little bit to the things that really struck us in this interview, and I'll lead off. Uh, the the uh, I was thinking about my friend Carl Medeiros, who has been on this podcast a few episodes ago, and uh, I was driving Carl and his wife Chris to the airport on Sunday night to go to the National Prayer Breakfast. Carl is... Uh, A big organizer of the National Prayer Breakfast, and so we were driving him to the airport, and Carl said something to me in the car that just riveted me. He said, you know, Rick, um, all through the New Testament what we're told is that our work is to believe. If you notice the number of times Jesus praised people who believed or had faith, it is his standard. And the Scripture tells us that uh, we're always hungering as people to find something to work at. That, that's why we're so drawn to formulas and recipes, we just want to work it somehow. And Carl was saying, yeah, well, Jesus has given some, us uh, something to work at, and our work is to believe. And so I've been chewing on that ever since, thinking about what does it mean to believe? And really what it means to believe is to accurately understand who Jesus really is and what his heart's really about. And that's one of my takeaways from what Paul said, is that we have had an inaccurate view of the goodness of God. We've had an inaccurate view of what he's really after. We've had an inaccurate view of what his love really means in our lives. And when we have an inaccurate view, we don't believe. And what Jesus is encouraging, I I just remember this scene towards the end when he's telling his disciples that he's going to leave soon, and he's trying to explain to them, we kind of touched on this a couple episodes ago when we were talking about how does Jesus relate to people? What is his standard of relation? And one of the things I read was, um, I I believe it was Philip, who said, "Uh, Jesus, um, you're talking about the Father and what the Father looks like, and we really want to see the Father for who he is. Can you show us the Father? And Jesus goes, Philip, did you hear what I just said? I'm telling you, if you've seen me You've seen the Father. Philip, listen to my words. If you see me, then you've seen the Father. And this is what I love about what Paul's pointing out. The reason we pay ridiculous attention to Jesus is because the Trinity has said, um, the Father has said, pay attention to my Son, because everything you see in him is true of me. The Spirit's job description is to help us understand the Son, and this is what the Trinity has decided for us to help us to understand the heart of God. They've pointed to Jesus and said, pay attention to him, or learn from him. So the reason we pay attention to Jesus is so that we can understand the heart of God, uh, because then we get to do good work, because our good work is to believe in, in God's good heart. Now what about you? What, what stuck out to you?
1: Well, it w- it was actually hard to pinpoint that, but I'm I'm gonna just I'm gonna um, camp on your Oprah question, <laughs> Rick's Oprah question. I feel like we should bring that to the show, don't you think? So his Oprah question, he said, "I'm gonna answer is that God is." light. Um, and there is no darkness in him at all. And this immediately brought me, I'm in the process right now. I'm reading the Jesus centered Bible using the Jesus centered Bible's reading plan, which is excellent. And the reason why it's excellent is because instead of just doing a chronological study of the Bible, which I have done multiple times in my life, this one actually flips you back and forth between the old Testament and the new Testament. So every time you read something in the old Testament, you're about to encounter something in the new Testament with Jesus that is referencing what you just read. And it just makes the story of the Old Testament so much more fresh. So I'm, I'm just gonna quickly read this. It's Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and the darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and everything passed and morning came, marking the first day. So now we're going to flip over to the New Testament into John chapter 1. And here we are right at the beginning of John, and he's quoting this exact thing that we just read in Genesis. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And I just, I loved how this was a direct correlation. The reality of the shack, the movie, the the story behind it. Um, And also the story of the man who wrote it, all of it is rooted in, in in a story of a man who was rooted in shame. He felt complete darkness and shame in his life. And what Jesus did is he came in and he lovingly through relationship pulled him and his entire life into the light. Um, to the point where he didn't have any more darkness. And that is why to him, when he says, who is God? He says, God is light. God is is bringing everything that I was ashamed, everything that was burying me into the light so that I can live a free life. And I love that this is just what he wanted his children to know. Like That's the whole point of what this whole entire endeavor that has resulted in a New York Times bestseller and now a major motion picture, just one man's desire To have his kids know who God was.
0: And the point of this, and the context of it that that, uh, I mentioned in the interview that it was so bold, is that I had never seen a writer go to the worst possible scenario, uh, the kind of thing that could happen in your life that you would say, I absolutely would never recover from this if this happened, and how could I ever believe that God is good if this happened to me? So he plants his story of God's goodness In the worst possible circumstances on purpose, so that if you can find the goodness of God in that place, you can find it anywhere. I thought that was bold and brilliant Mm -hmm. uh, of him to do. And it, it reminds me, that one of the things that did strike me as I was listening to him is, the question popped into my head, well, what people were just naturally drawn to Jesus? Like, sought him out and took risks to show up where they weren't supposed to be, just to be around Jesus? Mm -hmm. What people invited Jesus to their house and then enjoyed him? Didn't grill him, didn't interrogate him, just enjoyed him? Well, universally, these were people who were outwardly broken. They were all people who admitted their brokenness on the outside. In fact, they were lambasted, bullied, and branded for their brokenness. So it wasn't an issue of hiding the brokenness inside. These were people that lived admitting their brokenness. They were the ones most attracted to Jesus because they were outward about their brokenness. I write about this in The Jesus-Centered Life. The, the reason why I think Jesus enjoyed their company as well is when you are broken and you are outward about it, then you see Jesus for who he really is. You have no problem wanting to attach yourself to him. You have no problem understanding that his goodness can infiltrate your darkness and make your brokenness whole, because you are admitting your brokenness and your need for a healer. The, the best sheep are the ones who admit they're sheep, <laughs> and that need a good shepherd. Well, sheep are horrible livestock, as we've talked about on this podcast before. There's a whole laundry list of things not to like about sheep. But what if you were to admit Jesus' description of you— as a sheep, and in that admitting, say, and boy, do I need a good shepherd, I hunger and thirst for my good shepherd, because I'm very aware that I'm a sheep. And that when I come to him as a sheep, his response to me is, yes, you may be that long laundry list of things, but the only thing that identifies you, really, is that I love you. I love you, my sheep. Don't let the laundry list define you, let my love define you." And, and I love that about um, the quality of the people that were drawn to Jesus. And one other quick thing here, and then, Becky, you can, you can close us off today. The other night, uh, in our small group, I led the kids through a, an exercise that was very much maps to something that Paul was talking about in this interview. We started off by asking kids to think about their favorite story of Jesus. And then after they had done that, they went to the story, and they, I asked them to, to study the story, to write some descriptive words about Jesus, how they experienced him in that story. Then I put all their words up on this whiteboard. I just filled this whiteboard with all these descriptive words of Jesus. And then I said, we're going to come back to this in just a minute. But meanwhile, I just want you to close your eyes and, and relax. I'm going to ask you to do something vulnerable, but you're not going to have to share it with anyone, so it's going to be safe." but I want you to think about, and ask, I want you to ask Jesus, what's a lie that I have believed about myself in my life? What's a lie I've believed about myself in my life? Don't brainstorm it, just ask Jesus to show you a lie that you believed about yourself. When it comes up, I want you to write it down on a piece of paper, but don't show it to anybody. You can fold it over immediately if you want. I'm not wanting you to show this to anyone. So we did this. Gave him some time, I encouraged them to write it because I said writing is a way from to get it from the inside to the outside and that's what I want you to do. So they all wrote it, they kept it private, and then we went on with the talking about how we have a shattered mirror inside that reflects badly on us, just as Paul Young was talking about, and makes us prone to accept lies about ourselves. We have an enemy who who, who is the father of lies, as he's described in Scripture, so he's constantly seeding lies in us, and our broken mirror allows us to receive and embrace those lies. So we're talking about this with, with the kids. And then I said, look at the list on the whiteboard of all the descriptive words of Jesus. If it is true that we are born again when we come to him, it, and that now his Spirit lives in us, we are his abode, then all of these descriptive words about Jesus are true of us, because Jesus lives in us. It is his qualities and characteristics are resident in us, because we are his home. So I want you now to look at the list, and when you see something that jumps out at you, a word that jumps out at you, just you're interested in it, um, I want you to stop on that word, and then I want you to close your eyes again and ask Jesus, Jesus, how do you think that word describes me? And wait for him to respond to you. And then write it down. And they did. So what's happening here? What's happening here is this is called setting captives free, because the primary target our enemy has, and has from the beginning, is our identity. He wants to destroy our identity. Why? Because it's the most efficient way to destroy us. If he can poison our identity, as Paul Young has talked about, we wreak destruction, In our own lives, and in the lives of those around us. We just destroy stuff on our own, because we have a warped, destroyed identity. So Jesus has come to bring us wholeness again and and restore our identity, and once he can restore our identity, we live out our place in his kingdom and make an impact for him in the kingdom, and that's the very thing the enemy doesn't want us to do. So the restoration of our identity, And our participation with Jesus in helping to restore others' identity is holy, sacred work. It's what we're called to, it's our purpose in life, to help set captives free. So that's what I thought about when he was talking about this, and it is possible for us to not only grow in accepting the truth about ourselves, because Jesus tells us the truth about ourselves, but it's also very possible to participate with him in helping others arrive at the same place.
1: So I'm going to leave us with one last um, thing before we go. If, you know, we all have our own view of God and our own view of Jesus. And in this case, William Paul Young, his view of God was that God was against him, that he was he was not for him, he did not think anything good about him, and that if if God wanted to do anything, it was just to lead him into total destruction. And, um, but then he discovered the opposite of that, that God is a good God that, that, that finds him pure of heart. And I loved that he mentioned that f- multiple times. Rick Lawrence also has a quote in the Jesus centered life that I just find super powerful. He says, a nice Jesus isn't one strong or fierce enough to walk with us into the fiery furnace and the key to that is that he's the kind of guy you want to go like into a dark alley with, except for he's not leading you there to hurt you. He's leading you there because he wants to fight for you. And that is just, that is our Lord. He is for us. He loves us. He wants to fight battles for us. So I'm, I want to leave you with that. Um, also go to the shack.movie And watch the trailer. Join us in theaters across the country on March 3rd. We're going to be there. We're really excited about it. We're going to have a discussion guide and a devotion that we'll be releasing at the same time that we are developing for you so that you can have fearless conversation with your families and your friends about this film. um, And also so that you can just learn more about who this God is and who this Jesus is that's for you. Thank you for listening. Also, remember that you can find out more information about the things we talk about here today, but in further detail on the com. find our podcast section. And Season 2, Episode 5, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcasts, and we'll talk next time. See you next time.